a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 82 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman. And with me, like the ever-fluctuating luck of Zane Carrick, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! Hey, everybody! Now, we're dealing with Knights of the Old Republic this time, so is this... Oh, Lord, there's so many things named this. Are we talking the video games? Are we talking about the comic book series? Are we talking about the first volume of Tales of the Jedi that was called The Collection and then called Knights of the Old Republic? Etc., etc., etc.? Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions, like that. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that perplex you off and on. You part about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we plunge into Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic Commencement. That is the Dark Horse Comics comic series by John Jackson Miller. Now, consider this your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sension of All Ages, because here we go. But before we get too deep, into the spoiler territory. We'll give you a quick rundown for you spoiler light listeners. Right, this is a pretty decent little story. Um, it actually sort of gets a prelude in the number zero flipbook issue with uh, Rebellion called Crossroads, where we see Zane trying to capture Marn Griff Hieroglyph and winds up running into Squint, the Jedi as uh, Alec Squinquar Gessimus, or however you're supposed to say it, uh, who we later, of course, find is. Malik from the Knights of the Old Republic video game. But it's, I gotta be honest with you, it is a very, very strong start to this series. This is the way Star Wars series used to begin, with strong stories like what we got in the first arc of Rebellion, this first arc of Knights of the Old Republic, the first arc of Legacy, not, well, and even, I was gonna say, not so much Dark Times, but yeah, the first arc of Dark Times was actually really good. Uh, we just recently, in our last episode, talked about Star Wars Volume 2, Number one, which could have been promoted with the exact same text as what we see at the bottom of the first issue of Knights of the Old Republic. A new era of Star Wars comics begins here. Except not an era in Star Wars chronology, but an era in terms of the publishing philosophy and what they were trying to do hyping it up. But whereas that was a first six-issue story arc that had an ending that absolutely botched it, fell flat, and kind of felt rushed... This series is one where John Jackson Miller has managed to put together a tale that feels fairly tight by the time we get to the end of it. All the pieces are in place for the next arc. We get some satisfaction to the ending of this arc. And the last couple of pages of this arc are some of the best in this series ever. One of the best speeches ever made by a Jedi in Star Wars ever. 
um, this is how a series is supposed to start. Yeah, this is a very strong arc. Uh, you know, one of my favorites. I, I didn't come into the series until it was up into the 40s, I think. But, I, you know, I when I got the trade, I really regretted it. I mean, it was a, it was a strong start, and the series is a strong series. Uh, the characters in this all have, you know, deep backgrounds in the end. Uh, they're all fun to degrees. Uh, there, there's a lot of mystery going on in this arc. Uh, the art goes back and forth. There are times where the art is great, and there are times it's not so great. Uh, but I'm able to overlook that, you know, because in this case, unlike the last one where the art carried it, the story really carries this. Um, so, uh, Beyonders, if you're uh, spoiler shy, now is your jump off. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. That's right, and this is the story of Zane Carrick. Zane is a Jedi Padawan, nearing his knighting and whatnot, and it turns out, basically kind of the big picture stuff here, is that the Jedi Masters, led by Lucian Dre, uh, who is not a seer himself, uh, the Jedi Masters that, they, that he and the other Padawans have been with are seers. Uh, the ability to sort of see the future and predict where things are going to go. It's something they were brought together for, and we learn much more about their background as the series progresses. But they've had a vision in which it looks like one of their students may wind up being the one to bring down the Republic. They're basically seeing the events, or presumably seeing the events, surrounding the Knights of the Old Republic video game and its sequel, at least the first one. And in trying to prevent that type of thing from happening, in trying to prevent a return to the conflict that they know in recent memory as having come from the conflict with Exar Kun and Ulic Keldroma and such, they take proactive measures and plan to kill all of the Padawans. If one of them could wind up becoming the, the next Scourge of the Galaxy, sorry, for the sake of the galaxy, these Padawans must die. Only Zane is someone who the Force kind of works in in a weird way. He frequently has bad luck that winds up being fortunate anyway, and in the process of going through a series of bad luck incidents trying to capture Marn, uh, Griff Hierogriff, the criminal, as he calls himself, mastermind, um, it makes him late to the ceremony in which the Jedi Padawans are killed. So he manages to go on the run, uh, eventually teaming up with other characters like Griff uh, the criminal, like a woman named Jeriel, who he really doesn't know very much about. We get more background on her once the main first giant uh, mega story of Knights of the Republic wraps up, uh, and so on. Uh, we get to, to see them with a character named Camper, uh, who is another member of the, the crew at the beginning here. But basically, he gets kind of some other unlikely allies and is working to try to clear his name and basically bring down the so-called Jedi Covenant, as we'll find that they are called, which is Lucy and Dre and these seers. That if they're wrong, and he believes they... Maybe at some point. Sometimes he thinks they may be right. Um, but basically, he is going to fight to do what he thinks is right, not let himself get killed, uh, and still try to avoid that dark future. So it's kind of a, an interesting scenario in which we're put in a position of not quite knowing who to root for. We want to root for Zane. He's a nice character, um, fun, kind of wisecracking. He's sort of like the Peter Parker of Padawans. But ah, at good, the same Good analogy. Yeah, but at the same time with him, you know, there's always the chance that the Jedi Masters may be right. 
He may be the one who's going to bring things down. He may wind up becoming Revan in the end or something. We don't know. We're given hints as we go along that Revan is already out there and whatnot. The Mandalorian battle is already happening. But you don't quite know what role he may play in leading up to the events of Knights of the Old Republic. And we know that was a huge bad deal. So if he really is going to be a big part of that and part of what causes so much uh, devastation across the Republic, maybe he does need to die. But we in the United States especially, I mean, we are... Uh, uncomfortable many, in many cases with the idea of preemptive action. Like, you don't find somebody who you think uh, might be predisposed to child molestation and immediately sterilize them. You don't find someone who genetically may be predisposed to violence, as some studies say is possible now, um, and simply lock them up to prevent it. It's like the, what they bring up in a minority report, the idea of pre-crime. You lock them up beforehand. Um, I mean, we are. this was written and released in 2006, um, we had only recently gotten into America's first truly preemptive war in Iraq uh, to, to hit them before they can hit us. And, you know, it, it, it makes us uncomfortable as the reader to necessarily believe that maybe the Covenant is right in killing these Padawans. But at the same time, you have to sit back and say, but what other path could have been taken? Um, they're, what they do is extreme. But there is always that possibility that they may be right in their intentions, if not in the way they go about it. And that always, I think, added a, a different dynamic to the story with Zane than what we get in a lot of Star Wars comics. It's, very, it's usually very clear, black and white, good and evil. This is much more a matter of two sides that could be good and should be good, where both of them have very conflicting approaches and you think you know who's right, but there's always the doubt there. I love the way that is set up in this first arc. Yeah, the doubt plays well. I mean, I again, I got the trade here. So, you know, I like also how the way the first Zero Issue uh, Crossroads plays in. You know, when he runs across Squints and they're talking, you know, and they're playing up the fact that the Jedi are, are going to war against the Mandalorians. But they're, you know, they're really a small contingent. It's basically Revan leading a group uh, and, and that they need to have more there. And, you know, as he's about to leave, he's like, look, Zane, I don't know you well, but you may turn out to be a bigger player than you think. Something tells me. The Force? A hunch. Just be ready for wherever the journey goes. That's what we're going to do. We'll go to the front and beyond it, if it'll save the galaxy. Sometimes you have to enter the darkness to save the light. That doesn't sound like a very Jedi thought. It's not always a very Jedi galaxy, in case you haven't noticed. Well, the war awaits. See you around, Zane. And then after that interaction, Quinalia, and I'm probably saying her name wrong, the uh, blind seer, uh, the Mirakai, I think is how you say her species, uh, she's, she goes, the lines have crossed. Something has changed. Something bad. Something near. Several somethings. So this is obviously what sets things into motion. Because in issue one, we see, you know, they go out and they, uh, well, no, maybe it's issue two where they end up going to uh, the rogue moon and sitting down to have a better vision because it's a it's kind of like a focal point for the force where they're able to sit down and, and see clearer. Um, so I, I kind of had the impression that this is the vision that led her to lead Dre and all them to the rogue moon where they get the vision about the actual suit. I like that the suit. I mean, it, it, in theory, like a lot of prophecies and visions, I mean, you could even apply it to Darth Vader, you know, a man in a suit, rises and Sith. I mean, there, there was multiple aspects of how that could play out. But in Crossroad, 
the zero issue, the way that their interaction, when Zane contacted, or should I say, bumped into Squints, that that seemed to trigger that moment. Like those two fates colliding or having a run in allowed the seer to see, you know, Squints' fate, not Zane's fate. And granted, even uh, Squint ends up having one of those same suits on, but they're not aware of that. The Seers aren't aware of that, and it hasn't happened at this moment. So I like how, you know, from a unifying force standpoint, that you can kind of see that. And the unifying force is a very prevalent term in in this arc, too. Uh, You know, they're kind of more doing the mystical side of it and the way everything is all connected. I mean, you know, you'll hear me talk about it in the aspect of like, you know, uh, the Vong not being felt in the force. Well, that was because they were still part of the unifying force, you know, the, the aspect of fate and all that. And, you know, how can a, a droid that doesn't have metachlorines uh, be part of the force? Well, the unifying force, you know, yeah, you could feel it with your aspect of the living force, but it's still grounded in the unifying force. No matter what is going on with the living force, your senses and things like that, it's not alive in the living force. It's alive in the unifying force. You're sensing it through the living force. And I, I like the fact that they play on that and you're starting to see that aspect of, you know, what the Jedi and the old were more dealing with because it wasn't until the prequel trilogies that we even got the term living force. And then we later found out, oh, there's a unifying force too. It's it's great because for me, I, I see it as, you know, something with Empire Strikes Back. It's like Yoda wasn't talking about it, but he was totally talking about it. He just wasn't giving Luke the cliff notes. He was just giving him, you know, the, the, the super fast idiot version of the force you know like i don't have to give you the names i'm just gonna tell you the force and we're not gonna cloud it with things like all this other stuff we're just gonna worry about the dark side we're not even gonna worry about the light side we're just gonna deal about the force and it's dark side and we're just gonna give you the most basic that you need luke and since that the eu has kind of gone on and, and embellished and filled in more and what we see throughout this with the seers and you know and what i mean by this i'm not talking just the first arc but i'm talking the entire series you know it, it all spawns out of this and even though they, they close things off and, and like, you know, Nathan, me and you disagree with with war, you know, you, you think that it could have ended earlier. I like how it continued all the way up through. And it, it to me, it, it's like this was the perfect place for it all to spring forth from the impact of the events and the accusations that fall onto the character and the profound effects that that has on him. The doubt, as you call it. I just I like the way it plays into things. It, it's, it's a fun ride. I mean, and the art again, like I say, you know, there are times where it doesn't hit, but. For the most part, it really hits. I think the thing that really drives me nuts with the art is is Griff. Uh, you know, he he like he looks gorilla like sometimes, and other times he kind of looks beaverish or warthog like. Um, and I think like the main artist, the art I like the most, he looks more like a gorilla. The whoever does that art style is definitely where I li- uh, things are are clicked in and they're bumping. But I like Marn's. I don't know. He's like the con artist. Like I, I like the fact that. He sends sewage out as ale, so he's now got all this ale, and then he turns around and he tells this guy, oh, this is what I did, and then yet he's turning around and selling him more sewage, and we find that out because when Zane shows up, he cuts one of the things and sewage dumps on him, not ale that he told the guy he was selling him, so it's like, how classic is this? He just, I, I bet what he did was he probably stole a bunch of the ale and then sat there and put one drum in with another batch of sewage and was like, here, tap this drum and here's the ale, and then sold somebody else a whole bunch of just sold that initial steel's worth of ale one at a time, you know, to just make money. It just seems very much like like a, a, a run-of-the-mill drug dealer kind of thing. Like, I'm just going to take this stuff, and I'm just going to turn it, I'm going to cut a dime, I'm going to cut some more, I'm just going to keep cutting and make profits until they get mad, and then I'm going to move over shop, I'm going to move it across town to the other side of Terrace. 
what they were actually trying, I mean, they were trying to give us a sense of what it was like to be a member of the covenant and able to see the future. I mean, the, the whole sewage thing is a perfect analogy for what to expect coming up from these subsequent arcs of dark times. <laughs> this is true. Uh, you know, I, I love how when it plays up, we got romances and stuff like that, like uh, uh, Shell, which is, uh, oh, what is his name? One of the other Padawans, the, the, basically the golden Shad, star. Shad, isn't it? It's the guy's name, is Shad? Shad. And Make sure you Shell. say that right, otherwise it sounds like past tense of taking a... Yeah, that's true. Yes, thanks, Shad, like Chad, but it's Shad, who's got a sister named Shell, who he has a crush on. Uh, I, I, I like that, you know, he's got a romance interest, and I like how through the events that happens, she now has a reason to hate him, or, or at least perceived to hate him. And, you know, that stigmata of the events and, and how it got thrown on him... The way it plays out, I mean, what, it goes three, maybe four arcs before they finally resolve that main conflict from the first issue? Yeah, I think that was one of my favorite parts of this series is just sort of the way that little things are peppered in and then they do come back later and actually matter. Um, Shell being one of the, the best times. That and Squint are really the two that really stand out to me as, you know, here's this character peppered in very early on. You don't think much of it. You figure, oh, well, you know, they're just there for... Uh, to help add to the characterization of Zane, now they're gone. And then they show up again later and wind up playing a much bigger role and and shaping his character even more. Again, John Jackson Miller, in a lot of ways, when it comes to how he wrote this series, and I like to think the way he was trying to write Knight Errant had it not been canceled so prematurely, um, it d really does a good job in doing sort of the, I I'd say it's the J. Michael Straczynski kind of thing, which is what he tried to do with Babylon 5, which is, okay, season one, has these things peppered into it. You don't realize they're related. You don't realize they're going to come back, but it's important, and I promise you it will. Babylon 5's big thing, uh, one of them, for instance, was there's a healing device in Season 1 where basically you can heal someone, but only at the expense of your own life energy, and if you really wanted to completely heal somebody, you would have to essentially die yourself if not using it carefully. Um, you figure, oh, it was a throwaway episode, no big deal, we're not going to think about it again. And, you know, four years later, almost five years later, boom, it's back, and it accounts for a character, leave, actually two characters leaving the show um, and how everything winds up uh, playing out afterwards. I mean, it was, very, uh, it was in a very impressive use of the idea that you can write a television series almost like it's a novel with foreshadowing and whatnot, and that's what... Knights of the Old Republic does. That's what John Jackson Miller does here. He treats it as though, in a sense, at least the first big chunk of this series, maybe the whole thing, is one long journey. And you don't have to see everything to begin with. That's why I was saying that I still have some hope for where that Star Wars Volume 2 goes when we talked about it last episode, because we've seen series start by laying a groundwork that later on becomes much, much stronger in retrospect because we see where it's going. And right now, we only have one arc to judge that by. But this series, now seen in Toto, is really good at using those drop-in references. Uh, it's, and it was, if I remember correctly, this was John Jackson Miller's first foray into Star Wars when it comes to, you know, actual uh, legitimate Star Wars writing and nailed it. Yeah, it definitely put him on the map. I mean, like like you said, how he does the little seeding things now and then they pay off later. I mean, that's something he has been very good at. Uh, you know, there are other authors and stuff that do similar, but I, I've never felt the payoff. John always delivers. I mean, he'll always hold something back, but he delivers on enough of the plot holes and the open threads that you're all right. Yeah, doing some fist pumping. 
let me correct myself, I just realized I got to thinking about it, that no, this wasn't his first Star Wars story. It was very close on the heels of his first Star Wars story. His first Star Wars story was a model officer from Empire. Remember, because oh. I, I specifically made it a point of getting that one signed. So, yeah, this is his, basically his second Star Wars issue, I believe, is the first issue of this. Nice. Well, he definitely does a good job. I mean, and I like how how Dre comes across as a total dick. I mean, when, when Zane finally gets to the banquet by crashing in through the window after chasing uh, Marn, you know, the guy goes, Zane, you'll see that the manager is compensated. I'll take care of the damage, Master Lucian, and the meal. Hard credits, please. So the Jedi Masters were providing a meal for the Padawans that are about to graduate and all their families. And this, this Sith bag uses this this poor poor Padawan who crashes through, stinking like sewage, ruins the table, and now he's gonna lay everything, including the bill for the meal that the order was going to provide onto him. Yes, what because, kind of lesson is that? Because Padawans make tons of money doing that, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Which, which I love that they, they mentioned that too, because all the other Padawans chip in to help, even Shad. And, you know, they're like, uh, well, you know, what does he say? Uh, Hush, we're about to start living without possessions, remember? Everything will turn out fine. I could feel it. See you tonight. And, you know, it's like, that poor fool. I mean, he could feel it. Like, really, all you could feel is the force calling you home, buddy. And it's, it's one of the things that gets me, you talk about how Lucian is basically, you know, a dick. And Lucian is, I mean, he is in a lot of ways the embodiment of all the things that are wrong with the Jedi in the prequel era um, that Lucas was trying to play up. The idea that they are so sure of what they believe is right and what, and that their perception of a prophecy or of a vision is correct. Something that, you know, even Yoda can say could be misinterpreted. They're so yeah. certain. And Mace gives him that you damn straight look. Yeah, they're so certain that they're willing to do everything to the point of even killing their own Padawans. You know, to them, it's kill a few, save the many. But, you know, it's it's the, I was going to say it's the Wrath of Khan thing, but I guess now it's also the in, the Star Trek Into Darkness thing, the, uh, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one type of thing. But it's, it, you would think there'd be some questioning of this, and there seems to be very little as we go along among the masters of how to interpret this vision. And Lucian isn't even really one of the seers. Lucian doesn't have that gift. So Lucian's going, he, he's doing this with outright, you know, insane levels of determination and certainty in what he's doing when he didn't even share the vision. It's secondhand knowledge to him. Um, it's everything that is wrong with the dogmatic view that the Jedi take so often, and here, we don't have to have that pounded into our heads. It's just seen in the characters' actions. We don't need a side conversation between Yoda, Mace Windu, and Obi-Wan talking about how prophecies could be misinterpreted and how, you know, they're too stuck in their views. No. The characters do it. It's the, you know, is it show-don't-tell type of, of storytelling, which, again, makes this a particularly complex and very interesting tale to read. I would actually recommend, I mean, even if you don't plan on reading all of Knights of the Old Republic, just to read this arc can yeah. show you what Star Wars comics in a lot of ways can be when it's done well. Well, then there's that moment while they're in, you know, right after, or to say, it's actually right before he tells him to pay the man. Uh, he's talking to the blind seer and he goes, there's more important things to think about before tonight. And then the uh, tentacle beard dude goes, yes, tonight. Did you contact Coruscant? 
And he goes, I heard what I needed to hear. Yes, but what did she say? And he's like, it's all set, Zamar. Be at peace. And you get that feeling right there that he's definitely playing the rest of the Seers, that he's doing the uh, intermediary action there. I'll contact the council and I'll come back with the orders. Now, we later find out that she that that, uh, Exomar is talking about is Dre's mother. And she is a Seer. Which I, I find when we get to that point, that was an interesting twist because that adds some more to the background of this character. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, the big EU fan, just like Nathan. So having the big picture and coming back and rereading these things, I find those moments interesting. It's like, okay, so that adds another layer to this character if you have the bigger picture and you come back because you understand why he feels like he's also inadequate, which kind of leads to why he feels like he needs to be in control. And I like just the way it all plays. Yeah, Lucian makes for a very interesting way he plays out. Speaking of Zamar, the 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 kind of tentacle-faced character, he is a kill, uh, who for, a species that first made its appearance in Spectre of the Past. Yes, I had to look that one up. Uh, I always just kind of like thinking of him as an ood for all those Doctor Who fans out there. Um, but no, Lucian's troubled background and the, and the background of the Dre family and kindred and, and all that stuff, um, and of course having their supposed weaker servant in the background kind of manipulating events as we see by the time we get to Vindication uh, is really one of the other great storylines of this. you got the story of Zane, but you've also got the story of Lucy and going right along with it. Most of the other characters don't get that chance to really have that big of an arc by themselves until Jeril gets one after Vindication is over with. But in a lot of ways, you could sort of say that Zane and Lucy are the, the supposed failures of their particular situations and yet the pressures around them cause them to either rise to the occasion and do good or rise to the occasion and get led astray. Um, I've always thought it was kind of neat that those two characters had that not entirely parallel character development going on, but somewhat, where you know they both have... Neither of them is the perfect Jedi. Lucian is not nearly as perfect as someone in his position would like to make himself out to be, even though Zane... I, I guess it's sort of like, like Lucian is not able to get around the imperfection. Lucian always wants to be better because he feels that parental pressure, like he's never enough. Zane knows he's not a great Padawan. He jokes about it even with his buddies. And it's almost like in accepting his own foibles, he's willing to get past it and do better things and still make good. But Lucian is always dragged down by the weight of all those expectations and his own flaws uh, as highlighted by his family. I've always found that to be kind of one of the cooler dichotomies of this era in Star Wars comics. Oh yeah, I can see that. I, I like how okay, so Zane gets in trouble, he's gotta fix the mess, and while he's doing it, he's trying to negotiate with the guy, and the guy's like trying to come up with the with the uh appraisal of the damages. And while that's going on, he sees Griff again and jumps out the window, starts chasing him, catches him, and then of course, you know, during all this realizes he's late to the other half of the ceremony, rushes back to the the temple Comes rushing in, and it comes through, and I mean, of course, I think, I'm pretty sure, because, again, I have the trade, uh, this is like the second-to-last page of the first issue, and he comes in, Masters, please, and it goes to a glorious two-page spread with his head and his hand opening the door or waving it as the door, and he says, forgive me, and all the Masters are standing with their lightsabers out except for Lucian, because, of course, his Padawan's not there, and all the Padawans are murdered at their feet. It goes to, Luci- uh, goes to Lucian, and he goes, you're late, young one. And then it goes to Zane's eyes all big and terrified, and then the last is him turning and fleeing. I, I think, you know, for a first issue, 
of a series that was such a powerful beginning. I mean, that that set up like where are we going to go from here? And in a lot of ways, this is like the fugitive. I mean, from that moment on, it seems like every issue is action packed, whether it be flashbacks or right there in the present moment. It's always on the move. Right. And of course, he's very much like any other fugitive. I was thinking of the fugitive, like Richard Kimball in a lot of ways, or Ahsoka in the end of the Clone Wars, in that you know, he, they can try to use the authorities to say, hey, you know, I'm innocent, please help me. They're trying to kill me. But it's always that sense of, they're the authorities. They're the good guys. They wouldn't do that. Don't you see their badges? Don't you see that they're Jedi Masters? Surely no one's trying to frame you, Zane. That just wouldn't happen with these honorable people. You need to turn yourself in. And just, even when he turns to oh, the other Jedi Masters who he contacts from far away, um, they're still basically saying, yet, no, no, there are Jedi Masters there on Terrace who can help. He's like, no, those are the ones who are trying to kill me. Uh, and he's basically left on his own. Uh, we do eventually find out about the vision. The vision feels very, very, uh, it, it's very scattered. The artwork is done in such a way that it feels disjointed and just like bits of information. But that's really what the vision is meant to be to show just how vague this is. Um, I think it's a little bit odd that their whole clue as to who this culprit is is, hey, he was wearing one of these space suits. Um, but it, it's what sets the ball in motion. I have to say, though, as interesting as the chase is and them meeting Jeriel and meeting Camper and everything throughout sort of the middle of this arc, it's really the last issue and Zane's decision initially at the end of issue number five to turn himself in. You know, I'm going to stop the prophecy from happening. I'm going to turn myself in. Um, it's that and what follows that really makes this arc. The first issue is really good at getting things going. The last issue is good at giving us a starting point for the rest of the series. Uh, what comes in the middle is good, but those end caps, they're the ones that really shine. So I, I want to kind of head towards that last issue, but get in anything you want to talk about about the middle issues first, because that's where most of my interest lies is in the, the way this is handled at the end. Yeah, I mean, the middle issues are more kind of giving you the background on Zane. I mean, you know, we, we start out, it, it goes to the past with Master Vandar on Dantooine, and it talks about, you know, how he's got marginal force, you know, use. And I, I kind of question, I mean, it's like, really? You're going to tell the mother that her son is marginal? You're about to take her child? And you're going to tell her he barely meets the grade? Give her some freaking reassurance here, dude. The other thing about it is that... uh the one that I, I, I don't really understand, or maybe I'm not quite wrapped my head around it, is doesn't Master Vandar talk like Yoda as well in the game, or did is his grammar as perfect as it is in the comic? Because in the comic, he, he talks like a normal, regular person. But I don't know. Part of me was like, okay, was it in, in the KOTOR games? Did he talk like Yoda? He did. I don't know. But... We get that moment where, you know, he's running, he's doing the fleeing, it goes back to the present, and I love the fact that they do that. They establish the past, the present, you know, things in that regard. And the fact was, was they were going not to lay this all on Zane's feet, but they were going to lay it on Shad's feet. We later learn how that all plays out, but at this moment, you know, it's just him on the run and how he gets out, which kind of backfires in a way, because... You know, while he says, I, I'm a lousy Padawan, how can I kill all the Padawans? It, the reverse is true. If you're such a lousy Padawan, how are you able to escape five Jedi Masters? So, you know, it, he even makes a comment about it later, about the dark side lending power. And I, I love the way that that plays in. You know, him being on the run is great, but then he jumps and he grabs onto the bike with Marn on it, 
And then he takes off. Now suddenly Marn is also in on things. And of course, he doesn't think that's really going to be the case at first. But then even he later sees that, holy cow, I'm on the wanted posters as well. Uh, you know, another fun thing, too, is that, you know, when everybody busts through a window or something like that, as soon as they go through a crowded public area, the Jedi business, stay back. And then, of course, Lucy comes through. Jedi business, stand down. I, I just love those little things like that. These little nuances as they go through. Actually, in Knights of the Old Republic, he talks normal or forward, as George Lucas and Love would say, um, just like he does in the comics. So apparently uh, Yoda, a speech impediment I have. <laughs> well, that's good to know. I, I like, you know, they, they come out and they see that the wanted posters on there. And of course, you know, uh, Griff, he's failed Padawan, Sloan classmates, fugitive is armed and, um, and Zane's like, dangerous? No, deranged. Well, that certainly sounds like you. And of course, you know, he's like, well, he's like, just go, just go. Yeah, I think I, what, what is it? No. Yeah. I hate that picture. Let me see what it says. Accessory. Small time hood. I'm not an accessory. I am a mastermind. I just, I love that moment. I mean, I mean, that's, I don't know. That to me is the classic inside Griff's mind right there. I mean, you know, we see in the first couple bits that you know he, he's not above selling sewage to somebody after telling him i i sold sewage to the republic and then he's going to turn around and sell you sewage i mean that that takes a set of cojones <laughs> and and the fact that you know he gets all mad about being an accessory he's like i am the mastermind and i love the way he plays that up too i mean he calls the jedi he calls zane the uh, intern right up until they work together and then he calls him henchman i mean and that's a running gag all the way up into uh uh, Kotor War, even, uh, but you know that you get back to uh, Dre, and of course, you know he does all this. It was to be expected. He's definitely playing in on their visions, and I don't know if it's a sexist thing or what. Maybe it's because I'm male, but I get the impression that he puts more faith into the ladies' visions than he does the two gentlemen. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Yeah, like Canilla is like the the super. She's a super seer, the one that you know is is more accurate, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I think the last issue of this gives us sort of that James Bond kind of moment in the sense that we don't know exactly why they're doing what they're doing, but we've gotten hints. And then, of course, now that Zane is there, he's turned himself in. It's time for the evil masterminds to reveal their actual plans and why they did what they did. Uh, they lay out the idea essentially that Exar Kun, who's a recent memory for these guys, you know, he was a Padawan once too, but his master... He ignored the warning signs. He just let him continue onward, which is true. And we see that back in the Dark Lords of the Sith comic, that part of Night of uh, Tales of the Jedi. Um, they lay out that they are part of the Jedi Covenant. They give the name, talk about them being seers, that acting in unison, they can see farther than any Jedi has ever seen before. Uh, and they see certain things already in motion, that they were looking for shatter points, and they believe it is in their midst, etc., etc. Um, I find it interesting that Zane... The reason why the Padawans questioned the Masters and the Masters cut them down early before Zane could show up and join them is that they were arguing that Zane wasn't good enough to be knighted. So if they're saying, oh, he'll be fine, something's not right about the conversation. What are you hiding from us? What are you lying about? Um, even in the end, Zane is thinking of his friends. Uh, Shad's sister and little brother, uh, he was sending them his stipend. They got, they've got nobody now. Please help them. The idea that, you know, kill me if you're going to kill me, but 
make sure that they're taken care of. He's thinking the way a Jedi should think when really the Masters are thinking the way that a Sith would in terms of trying to control events. Absolutely. Uh, we see the barging in of Jeriel in one of those suits, meant to freak him out, thinking that it's the Sith Lord, where she's carrying Zane's lightsaber, and at this point we don't know anything about her and, and any of the, the experiments done on her to create her, etc., etc. All we know is here she is jumping in to save Zane. She's wearing the suit just to screw with him. Uh, and by the time they're gone, uh, again, it, it leaves the idea of, uh, I think Lucian says it well, you know, run if you want, but hide. Forget our ways. Bury yourself before you bury us all. Respect the vision. Fear what you may become. Uh, this idea, essentially, that even in escaping, they still believe that Zane is who they think he is, and they still want to try to convince him that he's the problem. So, hey, if we're not going to get to kill you, you better bury yourself. You better take yourself out of play so that maybe you can find another way to avoid that fate. Which is funny, because the Masters sure as heck didn't look for another way to avoid that fate. They went straight to, we're going to kill you. Um, which, of course, leads to the final great speech by Zane, which I'll hold off on in case there's anything else we want to deal with for this last issue before we get to that. Because that is, to me, the shining mm -hmm. moment. It was. Well, I wanted to go back real fast to when when Griff sent the Masters into the Undercity. Uh, you know, he did a really good job of throwing off the trail. There is a two-page spread there uh, that goes across the top. And the question I have is, what in the nine hells are the Gamorans doing there? Was that something that I'm just not remembering from the KOTOR game? Because there are equal amounts of Gamorans and Rat Ghouls, and they're all fighting the Jedi. I, I have no idea what in the heck those Gamorans are doing there. And it just, I was I was meaning to ask you that before we started the show. And I'm like, man, do you have any insight as to that? It's the Undercity. Gamorans, <laughs> Undercity. It works. <laughs> uh, that's it. Well, you know, you, you were mentioning uh, about the Masters. Zane says to him, you know, don't you want a fair fight? And Lucian goes, we can't afford one. I'm sorry. And, you know, and I just, I, I like that, that, you know, at least as much as we will disagree with what the covenant is doing, you get where he's coming from with his righteousness. I mean, he does have reasons to really feel what he's feeling and he's putting way too much faith into the visions. So you can see later why the Jedi as an order, are like not putting so much stock into visions. I mean, think about when Zane contacts Vandar and Vandar says, you know, there's a seer in your group. And one of the guys, the, the other council members kind of leans forward and, and whispers in his ear. And he's like, oh, unprecedented that is. And that's pretty much because they're all seers but Lucian. And that is very uncommon. But that's also the connection to the covenant. And we'll find out more about that as it goes later. But yeah, when uh, Jarrell shows up and she's wearing that that costume, I, I like also how because we don't know anything else about her, as we start to learn and as we get those details, you also question like, could she be the one? Because at this point, we didn't know who the exile was. We didn't exactly know who Revan was. So it was like, could she be Revan? Could she be the exile? I remember really leaning that way there for a while, and that maybe the visions weren't so much about Revan, but maybe it was Revan and the exile, and that it was maybe her as the exile. Uh, I, I just I love the way that. John Jackson played the mystery. You know, he, he kept it going for quite a long time. And he would also have on his, he had his own webpage where he would uh, reveal little secrets and little, little tidbits, little end notes and stuff like that. Uh, but this is the beginning of the relationship between Zane and Jarrell. And I, I like that. Uh, you know, it's, and I like how she even says, uh, he talks about how she came back for him. And uh, she goes, remember what you said about the suit camper added an audio and a trick helmet. It's like, but you could have been free 
And in a way, free and clear, maybe, but nobody's ever sacrificed himself for uh, any of us before. Couldn't let you think that that was some sensible behavior. Doesn't mean we like you or anything. <laughs> I just, I, I like how that relationship's growing. And then, of course, you know, there's when the master shows up, Lucian, and they're, you know, one's in the shuttle and he's on the other side. And he's just like, what's going on? Of course, that's when, of course, uh, you get the henchman title. But going back to the uh, part that you love, and I love, it is a, a very fun moment and it sets the tone for the rest of it. It's the fist pumping moment of the entire arc. And we're coming to an end here with an, an issue that has, you had mentioned before we recorded, a weird scene. At the beginning when we're hearing about the Mandalorian Wars and everything, there's a scene that it's hard to say, is that supposed to be Hazen? Um, is that supposed to be Revan down at the bottom in the cloak watching everything going on? Um, so there's sort of this this air of mystery about it. And you mentioned uh, John Jackson Miller's website. One of the things that he does is he talks about how in a sense, this series, this first arc, is the stages of grief. Uh, the Kubler-Ross model of the five stages of grief. The idea that um, we find in issue number two that it's all about Zane going through denial about what's happened to him. In issue number three, he's reacting with anger. He's basically a jerk to everybody throughout the issue. Uh, the fourth issue, it's bargaining. Um, him bargaining with Bandar and such. And then by the time we get to issue number five, he's fallen into essentially depression and is hopeless. And this is the issue in which he sort of climbs himself back out. He's come to acceptance of what has happened, knows that there's no way back, and he's now kind of at a different place. I find that very interesting. It's a very cool thing to go back and check out if you haven't had a chance. Uh, his website is farawaypress.com. You just go under comics and look for this series, and he's got stuff under the individual issues. But yeah, the big awesome end point moment is that Zane contacts Lucian once he's made his escape. And it bears repeating because it is one of the more powerful uh, endpoints to a story arc and more powerful speeches given by a Jedi within this era or just about any era of Star Wars comic publishing. He says, Hello, Master. I'm running now, but I've had time to reflect on your teachings. You say the living sometimes have to suffer to serve a larger goal. I've seen now you live by that. Well, I have a goal now, too. Justice. For myself. For my friends. For the people sacrificed to the plans of the so-called infallible. And it will definitely involve some suffering. Because, you see, I've had a vision of my own. One day, one of you is going to confess and clear my name. And to make sure, I'm going to hunt down each and every one of you. The one that confesses, lives. I don't care which one of you does it. It doesn't matter where they send you. You have a death mark, same as me. Don't look for me, Lucian, because I'll find you. And if I do end up collapsing the Jedi Order, just remember one thing. You started it. And it says, the beginning, as opposed to to be continued. Oh, that was a great way to play this out. Um, that he is essentially issuing a challenge to put them off balance. And we know that from here on out, it's going to be rough. This is Harrison Ford as Richard Kimball in The Fugitive turned into a Jedi story. It is very well done as an ending point. It's, it's the closest thing we've got in a lot of ways to uh, the end of the second-to-last episode of the Clone Wars. Or I guess, not the second-to-last, the third-to-last episode of the Clone Wars, where you've got kind of the Richard Kimball, you know, I didn't kill my wife, I don't care, where Ahsoka is at the edge of the pipe ready to jump and is telling Anakin that he has to trust her. You know, it's the... You hope he'll clear his name, but you don't know how, and now the stakes are raised. 
and that is it is the best line of the whole thing. I mean, no no question. Uh, going back to that page where you said it could be Revan or um, Sazen or whatever his name was, I, I, I didn't even think of Sazen, and I think you're right. I think it probably is him. It kind of uh, the background decor matches uh, with what I would think the uh, Dre family's estate would look like. The panel up above that, we see uh, Tarsus. And the Mandalorian front is now pretty much right there, close to it. And we see that Squint, a.k.a. Darth Malak, has now been captured by, uh, is that Roland Dyer? Is that the Roland character? So, so that's the Mandalorian that ends up getting with their group in the next series. And what we don't know, which we'll find out later, is these Jedi are being sent off to Demigol, who is going to be doing experiments on them, which will make Squint a more darker Jedi than we saw him last. I, I like how these things, there's no words. It's just a, it's part of a news briefing going on and you just see the panels. But again, John Jackson goes back and, and adds story to these scenes, these little moments here. And, and that's what's so great. And of course, you know, that last line sets up the whole aspect of dude, I'm going to find you because you started it. And I, I love it. And now you said the beginning, I, I think that plays well because you know, in the beginning, the, the issues have the, the past, the present, and it gives you that sense of this is just getting started. Um, I, I would say that in this case, you're looking at more of a series like lost, uh, even that, I mean, you use Babylon five, but I, I don't know that one kind of, because of the whole writer strike, I, I don't think it has exactly the same kind of, feel I'm going for whereas lost was like a start to end we had an idea we implemented it kind of thing something in that regard where you know they they didn't cut any corners you know that's that's what I felt with this this felt like a series that the writers and the team didn't back down they did what they came to do and because they were able to do that that the project was so much better for it and there's so much the, the themes expressed in this are so universal in a lot of ways I mean it does what star wars and sci-fi tends to do well, which is, you know, to kind of hold a mirror up to nature, as Shakespeare would say, where you're trying to show something deeper. And yeah, I don't think that that John Jackson Miller was going for something deep and philosophical. He was going to tell a good story with very complex characters. But, you know, just the idea of, you know, it's all based on uh, they had to die because, well, the Jedi seers, well, they're infallible, as he says in that last speech. It reminds me, I mean, I'm a history teacher, AP World History, World History, and so on. Um, it reminds me a lot of like Galileo and all the people, whether we're talking about the Crusades, we're talking about the Inquisition or whatever, where we've seen instances where religions in the modern day or, or in the real world are thought of as infallible. You know, papal infallibility, for instance, within the Catholic Church and so on, that sort of thing. And I mean, you take someone like a Galileo, uh, a lot of people know that Galileo is this guy, he used the telescope and he learns all kinds of things. He proves different things uh, uh, from earlier, right, like Copernicus and whatnot, uh, but that in the end... He is forced, no matter how right he is, to recant, to, to essentially say, I take it all back, to recant his teachings because the Catholic Church isn't willing to recognize his ideas versus what they have stuck to dogmatically for centuries. And eventually, even though he was right, even though he says he'll take it all back, he gets put on house arrest for the rest of his life. Uh, what people don't usually remember of that story is when the Catholic Church officially came out and recognized that, yes, Galileo was right, they were wrong, they shouldn't have done that to Galileo. Um, Galileo himself, uh, he died in 1642. Okay, so we're talking about the, uh, the late 1500s, early 1600s is when Galileo was alive. 
You want to take a stab at when the Catholic Church finally acknowledged that he was right? 1943. <laughs> you're, you're even giving them more credit. 1992. Oh, my God. I wanted to say in the 80s. Okay. Ah. So, I mean, there's this, this concept in the real world that, you know, religions and philosophies that tend to get very dogmatic a lot of times are not willing to be flexible in their views, sometimes because it's an extreme matter of faith. Other times because it's just the way it's always been done. And with the Jedi, we're kind of seeing both of those things coming together, both in the prequels and here, and they're giving us characters that live that out. It's not something being talked about in the background. It's not Barriss Ophi in front of you know the trial confessing about how the Jedi have lost their way. It's seeing it. Um, and that, I think, is the strength of this series and why I think this is such a strong start. It is one of the better first story arcs that we get for an ongoing series as far as setting things up for later and just being a really good read in its own right. Well, and John keeps the mystery going because by the time Zane finds LB, which was the only one available while they were on the Rogue Moon to see what the Masters were talking about, finds him at the bottom of the cliff. They, they find out what he saw, which was the vision. And of course, then then LB was so traumatized because of the upgrades that Camper had given to him, plus the fact that his master had made him force suicide. He deleted like what is it, thirty days of memory. So Zane was able to see the hollow of what happened, as were everyone with him. But there's no proof. The proof was erased immediately. And so I mean, it's like even though he knows he's right, and and that gets him beyond his doubt. He now knows. Okay, well, it's not just me doubting myself. These guys are trying to kill me. And the group of people with him knows it, so keep him, you know, locked in that reality. He still has nothing that he can prove to anyone else. He's still, even though we, the readers in the group he's with, know he's innocent, the galaxy still thinks he's a bad, bad man. And it leaves us with that bigger question that we always get when it comes to trying to see the future and trying to avoid it, um, which is the same type of thing I think that we got with, you know, the prequel trilogy. Um, would Padme have died? had she not gone to Mustafar and seen what Anakin had become and him attacking her and everything. And if that's the case, then, then is it really that what Anakin was seeing was the future and it just kept going and happened the way that it was supposed to, plan out, uh, to pan out? Or is it that by trying to avoid the future, he created it? In trying to save Padme from dying, he creates the circumstances under which she does and he becomes... Vader. In a real sense, if they had just gone on and trained Zane, or let Zane not be a Padawan and just kind of sent him to work in the Agricorps or something like that, you know, would the events have unfolded that eventually bring down the Jedi Covenant, that eventually wind up being part of the build-up towards the Knights of the Old Republic video game and the events they were trying to avoid? Is it possible that they have created the future by trying to avoid it and doing nothing was the right decision. I, it's again, it's one of those things that makes for a great thought exercise that you get out of a story crafted along the lines that this one is. Well, that's why a prophecy in my mind needs to be able to be related to multiple stories in the future. I mean, you know, the, the, the if you look at the suit of armor they had, it has a chest plate very reminiscent to Vader's. I mean, you could easily apply that to Vader or almost any other Sith Lord that come down the line. Uh, one thing I will say, though, at the end of this thing, uh, the back of the trade, it says the wildest adventure in the ancient history of Star Wars begins here. And I honestly would say that years later, that still holds true. Uh, this is probably the overall KOTOR series 
is probably one of the wildest and fun rides you are going to ever read. Um, you know, it, it, it's a little different from what you're normally accustomed to. There's very little starfighter battles. It's more Jedi focused, like I said earlier, with the unifying force, things of that nature. But Zane's character, his interaction, his relationship with the force, the way it manifests in his luck. Uh, I, I, I would I would say that that is a very accurate statement on Dark Horse's part. This is the wildest adventure in the ancient history of Star Wars. And and it, it was a great jump in point. I I. I I like this one a lot. It's one of those ones that I would put it up there as one of my favorite comic series, um, you know, up there with Legacy. Yeah, a lot of good fun. When we get to Vector, which is kind of what, what prompted all of this in the first place was getting to that tie-in. Uh, I think when we get to there, it, it'll be an interesting contrast because that, for me, Vector was the part that I really didn't care. The art turned in such a way that it really made it hard for me to enjoy that arc as much. But, you know, right now the art is popping. Uh, I think there was only one issue in here where, where they switched artists on you. But for the most part, you know, it's a very solid game plan. You know, John Jackson brings it and he brings it hard. Uh, you know, Nathan, you said this wasn't his first work. It sounded like his first work was just like a standalone issue. Uh, as for a, a series, an ongoing series, I mean, he brought it hard. And, you know, there's no question in my mind why he is now writing books for Delray. I mean, the man has got an attention to detail unlike many others. There are an elite group of writers, both comic, game, and book, and John Jackson Miller is in that list for me. Yeah, definitely a high point of Star Wars comics, or one of the high points of Star Wars comics, and one of the, the better new additions uh, to Star Wars around this time. And I think that that for folks out there who are curious, you know, how is this going to, plan, to pan out when we got a guy who's predominantly writing Star Wars comics, writes... A full-blown novel, not a bunch of novellas that connect together like Lost Tribe of the Sith, but an actual novel in the form of Kenobi. And let me say this, having read it at this point, you are going to be very pleasantly surprised by that book. Uh, he's really, um, I, I know I had some issues with Knight Errant, the way that Kara that, uh, Holt was a very unlikable character a lot of times in that book. Um, but that is certainly the blip in John Jackson Miller's run. I mean, Kenobi is right up there with this stuff. You're, you're really going to enjoy it. Well, and see, and you can turn your blip into a positive thing if you just think about it like that was the intent. I mean, that's how I took it. I was just like, she was supposed to be cross and rubbed your bra. <laughs> yeah, and she, and she certainly, certainly did. Uh, she did. And even then, it was a book that gave us such a great backstory to the Sith of that era that it was it was kind of perception shattering anyway. Um, so, uh, as we wrap up what apparently is a love fest for this particular story arc, bear in mind that coming up in the near future, we'll also have a feedback episode, so be sure to let us know what you think of this episode, recent episodes, and we'll try to get that all in in that episode where we're going to be recording it here fairly soon. Thank you for hanging around with us once again as we ponder on sharing the fandom. And remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Great place. Go there, like it, follow it, share it. Episodes are also available on iTunes, and we encourage you to leave us a review there while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms. Films. 
or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways, the best ways to interact with us. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. And I'm a little Facebook obsessed, so I'm pretty much on there daily. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Lastly, before you go, we wanted to mention your Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. With more than 100,000 titles, you can explore the Star Wars expanding universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page, Audible just might be right for you. And, of course, if you want to check out any of the many, many items, I want to say there's about 500 up right now uh, from my personal collection or my wife's personal collection that we are now selling off. In her case, uh, it's got some old Barbie stuff still in the old packages and comics and whatnot. I've got comics, uh, Star Wars uh, Monopoly, I think, is on there and whatnot. Uh, be sure to check that out. It is at Amazon.com slash shops slash Lil Joe Collectibles, as in Little Joe. It's L-I-L-J-O Collectibles, all as one word. And, of course... If you like Facebook, you want to interact with us there, and you are very continuity and chronology obsessed like I am, you might check out the Facebook page for the Star Wars Timeline Gold, which has a new release coming out soon, which is facebook.com slash SWTimelineGold. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds. I got none. <laughs> the odds that Nathan will run out of something again, or that uh, Night Errant will finally come back and they'll add more to that story. But don't you know it reached a satisfying conclusion? Curse you, Dark Horse, and your satisfactory conclusions! I have yet to be satisfied! No satisfaction! Whistler, don't worry, I got it. Let me handle it. These aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids we're looking for. Go away, guys.